Well, our Father, we are mindful that there is a tremendous amount of volatility right now in, in this country. And change is in the wind. And many of us are concerned because we are already picking up an attitude and a spirit and statements that are uh, quite frankly anti-Christian and anti-Bible. And uh, any believer with any discernment at all is sensing this. It's just the fact of the matter. So once again, we come back to your sovereignty. Once again, we come back to the fact that you are God and that you are in the heavens and that your sovereignty rules over all. In the coming uh, weeks and in the coming months and in the coming years, that will be our bedrock. And we are grateful for a church and we're grateful for a pastor who teaches the Word of God and teaches what the Bible says about your nature and your character and your sovereignty. To some, that's offensive. We like to think that we're in control. We're so concerned about uh, who we are and our wills and our choices, and yes, those are important, but you have a will. And Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. We thank you that you are a God not only of all power and a God of not only of all wisdom, but you are a God who is good. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have told us the truth about life, you've told us the truth about where history is going, what's ahead in the future. We don't know all the time frames. But, Lord, we know who you are. And help us as men, help us as leaders of our homes, help us as leaders of our families, help us, help us as leaders in our community to have that firm foundation under us. It has been easy in this nation to be a Christian pretty much since our founding, but things are changing and things are turning. And apparently many, uh, uh, many in our culture believe us to be the problem. So we simply need to know the times that we're living in, the, the men of Issachar, were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. So we don't fear and we don't allow anxiety to overrule us because we know you and we know who you are. Those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. I pray, Lord, for each guy in here that you will give us a strong sense of your power, a strong sense of your plan, a strong sense of your promises that you'll never leave us, that you'll never forsake us. Uh, let us not forget that you still have a plan for each of our lives, for our families. You have a plan. You're working. Your favor is upon us. Your hand is upon us. So, Lord, help us, help us to move ahead these next days with a strong confidence, not in ourselves or not in the fact that uh, uh, if things turn out the way we think, we'll be optimistic. Our hope is in you. We have no hope apart from you. Give us perspective. Give us perspective. Help us to look at life through the lens of your word and help us to be in your word. Now, encourage us tonight, Lord. Encourage us. Encourage our hearts. 
Remind us of what's true. Remind us of the facts. We're grateful we're not Hindus. We're, we're grateful we're not Muslims. We're grateful we're not atheists. We are grateful that we're in your family because you sought us out and saved us and redeemed us and opened our eyes and regenerated us and gave us a new heart. And through the work of Christ, you've given us eternal life. And we know where we're going. And you're with us every moment until we get there. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Joshua chapter 5 tonight. We're getting on the, uh, we're, we're still on the giants because the giants are still out there and they're still around. Uh, if, if you're a first timer, we've been doing a study on, uh, on the giants. We've based it out of Numbers 13. Uh, the 12 spies went into the promised land. They did a 40-day reconnaissance mission. They came back, gave their report to Moses and Aaron and the people. And uh, those 12 spies came back. And by the way, the 12 spies were all leaders, Numbers 13 tells us. Uh, they came back, they gave the report, they said it's a great land, this promised land that had been promised to Abraham, and now they were going to take it, and now they were going to live in it, and they were going to have cities given to them that they didn't build, and houses they didn't build given to them, and uh, crops given to them, and cisterns that they didn't hewn. God was going to bless them as they went into the promised land. But the twelve come back and Say it's a wonderful land, but 10 of the 12, and if you've been here every week by now, this is getting old, but uh, I, I read somewhere that um, repetition is the mother of learning. I'm hoping that's true. Um, our premise has been in this study that if you are going to be used by God, you are going to have to do something. Uh, anybody recall what it is? If you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to fight the giants. We have... Seven guys that remembered that tonight. That's very good. That's not bad. You think I should repeat it more often? I think I need to run more campaign ads, I think, is what I need to do here. But I figure seven out of this many guys, that's what, a 93% failure rate? I think I deserve a second term, don't you? If you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to fight the giants. And once again, we've been saying this now for months, Joshua and Caleb were willing to fight the giants. The ten guys weren't willing. They said, we're not able. There were giants in the land, and there was an actual race of giants, and they said, we're not able to take these guys. Joshua and Caleb said, God will fight for us. God is the giant who trumps every other giant. And we've been looking at some of the giants in life, giant diseases. There are guys in here that are fighting physical diseases that are... That are uh, bringing you down. You can't do what you used to do, and you hate it. You just can't do it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's a hard thing to lose your health. Uh, some of you guys are in very, very difficult marriages, and you're facing giant issues in your marriage, and you don't see any way to resolve these things. It, it, it's hard when you want to do what's right, but you have a spouse who doesn't want to do what's right. And that's the case for some of you guys that are here tonight. Not everybody, but for some. When you've got a kid or a grandchild who's in rebellion and they know the truth, but they're going to go their own way. That's tough. That's tough. It's a giant. How, how, do you, how do you lick that giant? How do you get inside their heart and talk to them? And let them know the course they're going is the wrong course and is going to ruin their life and cause incredible pain. All these giants. Um, Joshua 5, to me, is centered around a, a, a very unique type of giant. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you what the giant is, and then we'll back up a little bit and get a running start at this giant. The giant we're going to look at tonight is what I call the giant of complete vulnerability. Uh, we're men, and none of us, as men, none of us like being vulnerable. When, when you're fighting a, a physical ailment or a physical disease, you can't do what you used to do, and, and you're vulnerable. 
You, you have to be a lot more careful than you used to be. Um, yeah, 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 yeah I, I, I'm healthy. I don't have anything wrong with me. Mentally, there's some issues, but physically, so far, I'm all right. I, I like, you know what I like to do sometimes? I like to, I like to get the, uh, a tub steaming hot and just get in there and soak. That's a good thing to do. I think that's in the Bible. I think that's in Leviticus somewhere. You just get in a hot tub and you soak. And after a while, you know, you're ready to get out. You know what I do now when I get out of that hot tub? I get out very carefully. I never used to think about that. Never crossed my mind. You get in, you get out. No big deal. But now when I get out, I think about it a little bit. And I make sure I got footing, and I make sure, because, you know, a while back I got out and hit that tile, and it was a, it was a ride, <laughs> but one I don't want to take. None of us like being vulnerable. Uh, when you're vulnerable, you have no defense. You have no barrier around you. You have no protection. And there are times in life when we will face uh, what, what I call the giant of complete vulnerability. Now, sometimes we get there because of foolish choices and foolish decisions we make on our own. I look around and uh, I wonder, have you ever made a foolish decision? Any of you guys ever made a, yeah, any of you guys ever made a real dumb financial decision? Let's raise our hands, both of them to God. <laughs> Yes, God, I'm raising my hands here. Sure. And then I'll raise them again because now others are coming to mind and then I'll raise them again. We've all, we've all made dumb decisions financially. We, we've all made certain decisions in our life and as a result of making those decisions, we find ourselves facing some kind of giant, some kind of difficulty. We've made ourselves vulnerable by being foolish or being hard-hearted. But sometimes... You find yourself facing a giant, not because of a wrong decision you've made, but just because of the circumstances of life that you find your, 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 yourself dealing with and facing at this particular moment. Not because of what you've done, just because of what's come your way. Still a giant. Paul Johnson is a historian. I, I, I enjoy reading, and whatever he writes, I read. Uh, Paul Johnson, back when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of England, was an advisor to her. And uh, he writes a column in, in uh, Forbes magazine about every other month. And several months ago, in his column, he told the story of uh, uh, being in a car with uh, Mrs. Thatcher on their way to some kind of speaking event. And uh, they were talking, and he said to her, he said, you know, Mrs. Thatcher, I, I believe that there are just three prime responsibilities of any government. Just three. She said, really? He said, yeah, the first one is they maintain a strong national defense. The second one is they maintain internal order as opposed to chaos. And thirdly, they have a strong currency. She said, huh. And then she immediately opened her purse and took out a piece of paper and a pen and she wrote the three down. Those are pretty good. Uh, strong defense, maintain internal order, Strong currency. Uh, I, I believe that if you are going to be used by God, yes, you're going to have to fight giants. There's no question about it. But I see in Joshua 5 three things that are necessary for us to do if indeed we are going to be used by God. And let me give them to you. Number one, if you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to take the mark Number two, if you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to trust his provision. And number three, if you're going to be used by God, you're going to have to take a knee. Now, let's get a running start at Joshua chapter 5, and I'll show you what I've got in mind here. In, in, in Joshua chapter 5, here's the context. They have, after 40 years of wandering, they have now crossed the Jordan River, and they are in the promised land. Uh, this land was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, you can read about it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 
Genesis, Genesis 17, there were different aspects to the covenant that God made with Abraham as the father of the Jews, but part of it was the land, and as we know, they're still fighting over the land today. This has been going on for thousands of years. Uh, it, 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 it's, it'll, it'll never be resolved until Christ comes back. And, and the whole flow of world history and the whole flow of prophetic history is focused on this land. And we read about it in the papers and all this stuff going on. It's, all about, it's still about the land. It's remarkable, isn't it? Well, they're finally now in the promised land after being shut out for 40 years because of the sin of the 10 spies and the others who didn't trust God 40 years prior. They've just crossed the land, and now they're crossing the land, and who's in the land? The ites are in the land. These strong, advanced civilization, Jebusites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Amorites, they're all in here. And, and, and now it's time to take the land, and in order to take the land, now they're going to have to fight the giants. But is it not true, as we studied back a while when we studied Joseph, is it not true that, uh, that God works strangely? Yes, that is true. God doesn't do things the way we think that he should do them. God has a different uh, M.O., God has a different way of doing strategic planning than we do. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I've been in different churches over the years, and I remember one particular church that I was in, and they were really big on doing a seven-year strategic plan. And nothing wrong with planning. But at points, I, I found it absolutely humorous. Um, I mean, it made, it, it made sense to everybody in, in the room. And see, that's what concerned me a little bit. Because see, if it makes sense to us, it's probably not going to happen that way. Because God said in Isaiah 55, 8, he said, my ways are not your ways. Yeah, but Lord, look, we got these whiteboards and we got these storyboards all over this room and we've got it this and we got this and we spent, you know, three retreats and we've done all that. And, and when I looked at all that, I said, you know, their hearts are right and that's good. But what does God say? God says, my ways are not your ways. My storyboard doesn't look like your storyboard. Has that been your experience? You look back over your life. Did you make any plans? Where did you plan on being at this point in your life? Was it here? I imagine not. Why is that? The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. When I think of that verse, I always interpret it this way. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I had no plan on going over here and being here at this point in my life. No, I thought I'd be over there, over here. That was my plan. That was my storyboard. That was my seven-year strategic, you know, scenario. God tends not to do it that way. A prime example, Joshua 5. They came into the land. They got all the ites waiting for them. It's time, you know what it is? It's time to strap it up. It's time to put on the armor. It's time to go to war. Watch this. Verse 2 of Joshua chapter 5. And verse 1 is basically saying all the ites know they're coming. And all the ites are very concerned. And 5.2 says this. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Uh, excuse me? <laughs> Does that not seem a little strange? All right, we've been waiting for 40 years. We just crossed. We're ready. We're ready. The ites are there. They're waiting for us. We got a full schedule of ites. I mean, they, I mean you know, we've already printed the programs. We're going to war. And God says to Joshua, Joshua, by the way, Make flint knives and circumcise all the males. You've got to be putting me on. I mean, if you were there, put yourself here. Put yourself in there. We're reading this. Well, it's the Word of God and all that. Put yourself there. What would you be thinking? Joshua says, uh, hey, guys, gather around. <laughs> hey, I got good news and I got bad news. I want you to take out your knives. That's the good news. 
Uh, the bad news is, um, yeah. Uh, notice this, verse 3. So Joshua made himself flint knives, circumcised the sons of Israel uh, at Gilbeath, and I can't say that last word. Uh, don't you love some of these names in the Old Testament? I mean, honestly. You can say them any way you want to say them because nobody knows how to say them except a Hebrew professor at Dallas Seminary. So don't worry about the pronunciation. Look at verse uh, 4. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the people who came out of Egypt 40 years prior, who were males. All the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt, for all the people who came out of Egypt were circumcised. The Abrahamic covenant requires that every male is circumcised on the eighth day. You see. That's part of the Jewish covenant. That's it's mark. You take the mark. So they all came out of Egypt, and all the males had been circumcised. Verse 6, for the sons... Um, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish 5. For the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. They didn't practice circumcision during the 40 years of wandering. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. Verse 7, the children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. So for 40 years, they don't circumcise the, the male babies at eight days. So now you got a bunch of guys in their 20s, 30, 35, 37, 38, 39. Hey, guys, I want you to take your knife. And they say, hey, we're going to war. Yeah, you bet you're going to war right now. <laughs> you're fighting a battle you never thought you'd be fighting. <laughs> Everybody gets circumcised. Now, now, stop and think about this. They're ready to go to war. All the ites are lined up, knowing they're coming. They circumcise themselves. Ah. Uh, that's not a deal when you're 38 years old and you, you get circumcised where you take two not Tylenol and get up in the morning, is it? No. Um, we've got three children, and when Josh was born, uh, there'd been, it was a really difficult pregnancy, and a lot of things could have gone wrong, and God was very gracious. When, um, when Josh was born at Stanford Medical Center in Palo Alto, as soon as he came out of that womb, we had the doctor there, of course, but uh, I believe there were three doctors and three nurses. Uh, you know, I'm watching this kid be born. It's a great moment. All of a sudden, boom, that door busted open, and here came three doctors and three nurses, and they grabbed that kid, and they start checking him over, and they thought they were going to have to reverse Mary's blood flow somehow. I don't even know what that means. But she had some serious issues, and long story short, as a result of all of that, and we were very grateful how things turned out, but it became very clear that another pregnancy would be very, very um, tenuous. So I went down and got a little procedure. And uh, it changed my life. Uh, and, and the guy, the doctor said, yeah, come in on a Friday, you know, and you'll be fine by Monday. And I said, okay, no big deal. So, you know, Friday, you know, I do the thing and go home, and I'm fine. No big deal. Saturday, I wasn't doing real well. <laughs> I wasn't doing well at all. Uh, I really wasn't. And uh, we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. And probably 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm just, I mean, I, I really can't move. And I'm just, I'm just prone on the bed, and, and all of a sudden I hear this rumble, and uh, I'd heard this rumble before, and it wasn't a cement truck coming down the street, it was just a real deep rumble, and if you've ever lived in California, you know that's one of the first, oh, that's the earthquake rumble, and then I noticed the light fixture started, and then I noticed that the house started swaying. 
How many of you guys have never been in an earthquake? Let me see your hand. Oh, my God. You've missed it. You've missed it. Nothing like an earthquake. Nothing like a good earthquake. And, and the house starts moving. I mean, and there's not a thing you can do. You're completely out of control. And if it's strong enough, you can't, if you want to get out of the room, you can't get out of the room because it throws you up against the walls. And everything is moving. Everything's separating. Stuff's starting to come down if it's strong enough. Uh, I was in another one the year before, eating lunch with a guy at Victoria Station in San Francisco at Embarcadero, which is built underneath a freeway overpass. And we were sitting there talking and talking to Hank, and all of a sudden you hear the rumble. And Hank and I looked at each other, and then you felt this, and then we looked up to see if the overpass was going to come down on us. And it didn't. You'd love California. <laughs> but that was a year before, so I'm in bed, and all of a sudden everything starts moving, and i got to tell you something. I'm completely vulnerable. And I, usually what you do, or at least what I do, is I get up and I, we grab the kids and we go outside. I, I don't believe in standing under a door jam thing. I've never bought that. I just get outside. But I couldn't move. And, and I said, Mary. <laughs> Mary. I'm dead serious. Because my voice had changed. And... <laughs> It, it was, I got to tell you guys, it was a very, very helpless feeling. There is an account in the Old Testament of, uh, uh, of a gal that was raped. And the guy who raped her said, basically, well, I, I really want to marry her. Sons of Jacob here. And they said to them, well, if you're going to marry her, we practice circumcision. You guys aren't circumcised. So all you guys, the whole, the whole town needs to get circumcised. And the guys circumcised themselves. And when they did, they were completely vulnerable. And two of the sons went over and murdered every single one of them. I, I say that to remind you of how vulnerable these guys were when they obeyed God. There are times when God will purposefully make us completely vulnerable. And when you're completely... When you're completely vulnerable, you have no defenses whatsoever. We, we all look pretty together here tonight. We look pretty calm. We look like we got life under control. There are some guys here tonight, circumstantially, and the fact of the matter is, you, in your life at this point, find yourselves being completely vulnerable. The defenses you used to have built into your life are gone. Maybe financially, they're gone. Maybe health-wise, they're gone. Maybe relationally, they're gone. Whatever it is, you find yourself completely vulnerable and without defense. When that happens, what do you do? Psalm 27, if you turn there. David knew what it was to be completely vulnerable. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Note the next line. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When you find yourself completely vulnerable and without defense, when you find yourself uh, because of what's going on in this economy, and, and I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged because it seems to be all coming together, doesn't it, guys? <laughs> American Express now wants in on it. Dairy Queen wants in on it. Everybody wants in on it. And, I mean, is it? We've been talking about this for weeks. Is it not true? Every day you get up and you read some, it's worse and it's worse and it's worse. So we've got guys in here that, quite frankly, 
a year ago weren't feeling vulnerable financially. I would say the vast majority of us in here right now are feeling vulnerable financially. Because a year ago, you had this much. And you don't have much now. Not what you had a year ago. Putting off retirement. Um, Not even thinking about retirement. Work until you drop dead. That's kind of what you're thinking now. Everything has changed. Everything. Uh, Six months ago, you had a job. A month ago, you had a job. It's not there now. You're vulnerable. All your defenses are down. So then, where do you turn? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Go to Psalm 28. Notice verse 8. He says, The Lord is their strength, and He is a saving defense to His anointed. Back up to verse 6, and let's run into verse 8 to get the context. The, uh, the psalmist, and is it, is it David here? Yes, it is. I had to check. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. When you're completely vulnerable, you're without strength and you're without a shield. So who is your strength and who is your shield? The Lord. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. You know what's interesting about all this stuff we're going through right now? Is that, quite frankly, if the truth were to be known, when things are going well... Our trust is in the stuff that's going well. We just assume it's always going to be there. But you see, when it's taken away, suddenly we recalibrate and go, wait a minute. I can't put my trust in it. And you didn't even mean to put your trust in there or in that or whatever it is. Where is my trust? My heart trusts in him. And when you trust in him, I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts. And with my song, I shall thank him. You know what I did this morning? I usually get up and I get my Bible and I start reading my Bible. I got up this morning. I woke up this morning and for some reason, the first conscious thought I had was great is thy faithfulness. I don't know why, but it was there. So I got my Bible and I got up and then we got an old hymnal that sits on the piano and I got that hymnal down and I read through great is thy faithfulness. It's good stuff. It's good theology. And then I read across the page, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I started reading some of those old hymns, two, three hundred years old. Uh, that, because they're two, three hundred years old, I mean, just because they're old doesn't make them good. They're good because of the theology and because of the truth. That's what makes them good. And, and before I even open my Bible, I, I mean, I, as I said, that's usually where I begin. I just started reading these hymns, but the hymns were full of concepts from the Word of God. Interesting. And then verse 8, the Lord is their strength, and He is, look at this. He's not just a defense. He is a, what kind of defense? He's a saving defense. There are a lot of different defense systems, but not every defense system works. The Lord is a saving defense. So here are these guys circumcised, absolutely out of commission, absolutely vulnerable. Any one of those tribes of ites could have come in there and wiped those suckers off the map, but it didn't happen because the Lord is a saving defense I find it interesting that they obeyed the command. Sometimes we forget about the importance of obedience. There's nothing you can do that is more spiritual. You know, different groups of Christians have different badges of spirituality. If you're really spiritual, you will do this. And and some of those things are very legitimate. They're marks of maturity. 
Um, if, you know, if, if, if you're mature, you're, you're spending time in the Word. I, that's true, absolutely true. If you want to become mature, you spend time in the Word of God and you meditate on it and you think about it. And then you apply it to your life and you ask God to lead you. And as he brings those principles to your mind, you put them in the practice. Uh, you know, some groups say, well, have you had this spiritual experience? Well, no, oh, you need to have this spiritual experience because you'll receive power, you see. Have you spoken in this language? No, well, let me show you how to do it. Well, that's not how they did it in the book of Acts. They didn't have, they didn't have classes. They didn't have summer school on how to speak in tongues. It just, boom. And when they spoke, it was a known language, and the people around them heard them praising God in their own dialectos. Acts 2. You know what that means? That means the guy was not only speaking a different language, but he was speaking it in Brooklyn. The guy from Brooklyn heard some guy speaking English in Brooklynese. The guy from... Uh, the, the, the guy from Alabama heard the guy speaking in his own dialect. That's how precise it was. Known languages. Oh, have you had this experience or this or you've had this? Let me tell you something. And they, well, this experience trumps this. Listen, nothing trumps obeying the Word of God. Nothing. You want God's favor in your life? You want God's blessing? Obey it. Do it. Quit screwing around. Follow Christ. Right? Don't touch sin with a 10-foot pole. Now, do we believe in grace? We do believe in grace. Of course we believe in grace. It's amazing grace. But we also don't want to trample on grace. And we also don't want to make it cheap because of how we value it, because of who he is and because he's our Lord and because he's our master. We're going to get into this in a minute. When he speaks, you obey. God blesses men who obey him, who have a desire. You say, well, I don't always obey. Nobody in this room always obey. But is that your desire? Is that your gut? You want to obey, and then when you don't, and he convicts you, you nail it right then and say, Lord, forgive me. And you mean it. Okay. Guys like that, you've got a saving defense. You say, well, Steve, I haven't lived like that. Then call on him, and he'll save you. Why, why am I... Because you know what? So many guys are screwing around. That's why. When I read studies that of people that describe themselves as born again and only 9% of them believe this Bible is the inspired word of God and that every teaching in it is of God, that concerns me. When basically one out of 10 Americans, oh yeah, I'm a Bible, I'm an evangelical Christian, and you don't believe this book? You're kidding yourself, pal. I just want everybody to like me. It's real important. It really isn't important, is it? Uh, when they were circumcised, you know what they did? They took the mark. There was a guy named Origen. You know, when you study the Bible, you really need to study it carefully. So what does this mean, Steve? Well, I think it means, that I think, if you've not been circumcised, I think this weekend you need to go home and do it. <laughs> I think you need to trust God and make yourself completely vulnerable. Actually, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> uh, there was a, a, a teacher in the early church, a man by the name of Origen, and he was studying Matthew 19, and uh, I think it was Matthew um, yeah, 19.12. In fact, flip over there real quick. Matthew 19.12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. He was able to accept this, let him accept it. He looked at that passage, studied it, and uh, went home and castrated himself. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. See, when you study this stuff, you've got to study it very carefully. So, when it comes to circumcision, what's the point? You know, 
we're not part of the Abrahamic covenant, we're part of the new covenant. And the scripture, interestingly enough, often talks from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it talks about the circumcision of the heart. God looks on the heart. A lot of people say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I've been baptized. And see, their trust is in the fact that they've done something external. Yes, I've taken the mark. I've been baptized. I've done this. I've done this. But it hasn't happened in their heart. In their heart. You believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You see, God's always looking at our heart. Has the heart been circumcised? Is, has the heart been marked? Have you been marked in your heart by the work of Christ and by your trust in him alone for your salvation? That's the key. That's the issue. Without that, you're not a Christian. Without that, you don't know him. If you haven't in your heart trusted him alone to save you from your sin, you don't know him. That's the gospel. And the good news is you can know him and that your sins are forgiven. And he'll come into your life, and he'll walk, not only save you from your sin, but he'll navigate you through life. I couldn't remember, um, I, I couldn't remember if I read this quote here or if I read it at the men's retreat. I, I couldn't remember. So I'm going to read it again. Because most of you guys are old, and you don't remember if I read it anyway. <laughs> so what does it matter? Okay? All right. It's a great, great book written about 100 years ago, The, the I Wills of the Psalms. Um, here's where I'm going. When, when you find yourself, was it at the men's retreat, someone said? I, I, I caught something. Okay, whatever. I think it was the men's retreat. When, when you are completely vulnerable, you will find yourself troubled because you have no defense. I love this guy. P.B. Power is his name. Listen to what he has to say. We are told in the word of God that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward so that each man has plagues which his own heart knows and which are perhaps unknown to all around him. These troubles, as we will observe, are of various kinds. Now watch this. He's going to give categories of troubles. Let me give them to you. He says some troubles are provoking some troubles are gnawing, G-N-A-W-I-N-G. Some are perplexing, and some are overwhelming. Then he says this. There's a class of troubles um, which are eminently provoking. What does he mean by that? Perhaps no serious results hang upon them, but they are uh, peculiarly calculated to try and frustrate us to stir up our feelings and to disturb us. These, these are like stones in the shoes of daily life, and as such they are troubles, and it would be foolish to call them by any other name. Do you ever, do you ever have small things, just detail after detail? This thing, it's, it's like stones in your shoe. They're not huge, but they just drive you nuts. That's one kind of trouble. He says there's another class which might be called gnawing troubles. Such eat slowly into your heart's vitals. Such fret silently as the moth does to a garment. They destroy, they destroy life's brightest colorings and its most beautiful patterns and leave nothing but wreck and ruin wherever their tooth has come. There are many in the world who have a gnawing at their hearts. But then he goes to two other categories. Some troubles are perplexing and distracting. Such troubles do not gnaw the heart they are too intrusive and pressing for that. They put a person to his wit's end. They confuse and harass him and almost wear him out by the anxiety to which they expose him. You know anything of that kind of trouble? Sure you do. Just flat, they'll wear you out because they don't quit. Then there are overwhelming troubles, troubles which sweep over a man just as the mighty billows of the ocean sweep over and submerge the sands. These are the troubles which struggle with us, as it were, for life and death, troubles which would leave us helpless wrecks, troubles which enter into conflict with us in our prime, which grapple with us in our health and strength, 
and threaten to conquer us by sheer force, no matter how bravely we may contend. Then he says this, let us be careful not to allow ourselves to be overcome by the depression, which is the natural consequent of a position of isolation and dealing with trouble. And let us not lose our privilege and our source of help. He talks about he talks about when our privileges are removed. Uh, another way of saying that, he talks about when we are completely vulnerable. He says, we are not without privilege even when visible privileges are removed. What's a visible privilege? A job? Uh, a nice pension fund? A nice retirement account? When these things are removed, we have the highest privilege then of all. We can cry to God direct. Our cry will ascend straight to his throne from the end of the earth. I always think of Psalm 57. I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me, he will send from heaven and save me. No matter what kind of trouble you're in, you call to him, you cry to him, and who is he? He has a saving defense. He accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven, Psalm 57 says, and what will he do? He'll send from heaven and he'll save me. Uh, these guys were completely vulnerable because they took the mark. Let's look at the second one, since I'm running out of time. These guys were completely vulnerable for another reason, and if you go back to Joshua chapter 5, this, this, is, this is one you could pass over very easily. Uh, verse 10, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Verse 12, the manna ceased on that day. That's huge. You say it's huge? Yeah, it's huge. The manna ceased on that day. You know why that's huge? Because for 40 years, God fed them with manna. They should have been in the promised land. They should have been in there 40 years ago, eating the, the produce, eating the grain, uh, eating the whole wheat bread, eating the fruit, eating the crops. They should have been living off the land. They should have been eating the good life. But no, they're wandering in the wilderness. And for 40 years, you know how God fed them? Fed them with manna. It was uh, coriander seeds, a wafer with honey. Uh, it was there every day. And every day they needed fresh manna. And if you took too much manna, it would go bad. If you didn't take enough, it would expand so that you'd have enough for your family. Um, on the Sabbath, there was no manna. So the day before the Sabbath, God told them to take two days' worth, and they took two days' worth, and it didn't spoil because it was the Sabbath. See, God supernaturally made sure that they had provision and that they had care. Uh, for 40 years, God provided for these people. Uh, what's happened? Now they're in the promised land, and for the first time, now they're eating the crops. And from here on out, they're going to eat the crops and the produce of the land. But for 40 years, God provided for them on a daily basis. When, when you are in a situation of financial need. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, there's that little phrase, give us this day our daily bread. When we pray that, those of us who are Americans, we rarely mean that because we've got so much. But there are people in the world who literally pray, give us this day our daily bread because they don't know where they're going to get their meal. When you're out of work and the cash flow stops and you go through all your savings and you go through all this and you go... Suddenly you're praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. You, you know, the good thing that comes out of this economic meltdown that we're in, the good thing that can come is that people suddenly become aware of their need of the Heavenly Father. I need Him to provide. I need Him to supply. Uh, Jim Cimbala, many of you guys know, uh, 
is pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, been there for a number of years. God has blessed that ministry and blessed that church. But when Jim went to that church, it was a little tiny, broken-down church. Hardly anybody attended. His father-in-law had to talk him into pastoring. He was a young guy in his 20s, and it was, it was a depressing situation. Uh, he tells a story about his uh, first week there. He said, I shall never forget that first Sunday morning offering of $85. The church's monthly mortgage payment was $232, not to mention the utility bills or having anything left over for a pastoral salary. Did you get that? He wasn't sure he was going to get paid. He wasn't sure he could buy groceries. Have any of you guys ever been there? Have you? If you have, raise your hand. Okay. Aren't you glad you're not there now? Yeah. But if you've ever been there, you learn lessons you never learn anywhere else. You learn lessons you don't learn at the Harvard Business School when you're praying, give us this day our daily bread. So, so they got a mortgage payment. They got 85 bucks. They got a mortgage payment of 232 and they don't have money to pay utility bills or his salary. Uh, when the first mortgage payment rolled around at the end of the month, the checking account showed something like $160 in hand. We were going to default right off the bat. He's a new pastor, a new church. They're going under. How soon would it take to lose the building and be tossed out into the street? That Monday, my day off, I remember praying, Lord, you have to help me. I don't know much, but I do know we have to pay this mortgage. He's a rookie pastor. I went to the church on Tuesday. Well, maybe someone will send some money out of the blue, I told myself, like what happened all the time to George Mueller in his orphanage back in England. Uh, he just prayed and a letter or a visitor would arrive to meet his need. The mail came that day, and there was nothing but bills and flyers. Now I was trapped. I went upstairs, sat at my little desk, put my head down, and I began to cry. Oh, God, I sobbed. What can I do? We can't even pay the mortgage in this place. That night was the midweek service, and I knew there wouldn't be more than three or four people attending. The offering would probably be less than $10. How was I going to get through this? They have thousands of people that attend every Sunday now, but this was in the beginning. I called out to the Lord for a full hour or so. Did you catch that? He did what? I called out. I will call out. I will cry to God most high. Psalm 57. To God who accomplishes all things for me, he will sin from heaven and do what? Save me. Watch this. I called out to the Lord for a full hour or so. Eventually I dried my tears and a new thought came. Wait a minute. Besides the mail slot in the front door, the church also had a P.O. box. I'll go across the street and see what's there. Surely God will answer my prayer. With renewed confidence, I walked across the street, across the post office lobby, trolled the knob in the little box. I peered inside. Nothing. As I stepped back into the sunshine, trucks roared down Atlantic Avenue, downtown Brooklyn. If one had flattened me just then, I wouldn't have felt any lower. Was God abandoning us? Was I doing something displeasing to him? I trudged wearily back across the street to the little building. As I unlocked the door, I met with another surprise. There on the foyer floor was something that hadn't been there just three minutes before. A simple white envelope. No address, no stamp, nothing. Just a white envelope. With trembling hands, I opened it to find two $50 bills. I began shouting all by myself in the empty church. God, you came through, you came through, you came through. We had 160 in the bank, and with his 100, we could make the mortgage payment. My soul rang out, hallelujah, what a lesson to a young pastor. To this day, I don't know where the money came from. I only know it was a sign to me that God was near and faithful. Great is thy I'll never forget the guy I met in Sacramento five years ago, doing a conference. One of the breaks, he came up to me and he said, Steve, I've been out of work for 19 months. I said, really? He said, I start my new job Monday. And he said, I got to tell you, I'm almost sad that I found a job. I said, why would you be sad you found a job? He said, the last 19 months have been the greatest 
19 months of my life, the greatest 19 months of my wife's life, the greatest 19 months for our entire family. Because for 19 months, we didn't know how we were going to make it. I said, really? He said, yeah, when I lost my job, we sat down. My wife and I one night, we looked at what we had, and we figured we could make it for 90 days. And I'm screwing around trying to find out. There's no work to be had. But we could make it for 90 days. We got to the end of the 90 days, and we sat down, and we looked at our resources, and we figured, well, we can make it another 90 days. But I didn't have a job. But it was remarkable how God brought in the funds that we needed. And then we made it through that 90 days, and then we sat down and said, well, where are we now? And we figured out we could make it another 90 days. That happened. That went on for 19 months. He said, you know what our family, you know what my kids have seen? My kids have seen that God fulfills his promises. We were never in a place of need. We always had enough. We always had more than enough. We never had to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But we've seen God do, do things that we used to just hear missionaries talk about. This is America, guys, but America is in trouble. We're in trouble. We're in deep trouble, unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in an opportunity where some of us are going to see, maybe for the first time in our lives, him fulfill the promises that we've never been in need of. Now, let me quickly go to the last point, because I'm about done. This all focuses around this giant, this, this, this giant of complete vulnerability. It might be financial. It might be in a marriage. I, I don't know. It could be a hundred different ways in your life. But see, the, the answer is, is right here in the next section of Joshua 6, verse 13. And see, this is where he takes a knee. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, the man was standing opposite him with his sword and drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? He said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you were standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Uh, really what Joshua did here, he didn't take a knee, he took a face. He got on his face. This wasn't an angel, because when angels appear, you don't get on your face. When angels appear, you're not on holy ground. But when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, what did he tell him? Take off your sandals, you're standing on what ground? Holy ground. He was in the presence of God. This was what we call a theophany a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He realized that he was standing before God Almighty, and he took a header and buried his face and worshipped. You see, this is the captain of the army. This is the one whom we serve. This is the one we obey. He is our master. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our sovereign keeper. He is our saving defense. He is Jehovah Jireh. He's the one we serve. And if you know him, you don't need anybody else. You just need him. You need Christ. You need Christ. The whole world needs Christ. And we're privileged to know him. And we're privileged to have his word. And we're privileged to have his promises. So who are you following? And who is your captain? Quite frankly, I think for many of us, we got a little fogged in. Other things, you know, you know, one of the churches is specifically marked in the book of Revelation that they lost their first love. Christ is first. Christ is supreme. Christ is the Savior. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, that's old-fashioned language, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You know what? I miss Paul Lanier. You guys remember Paul? You guys have been here a while? Sure. King and 
Richard and the other buddies would bring him in, and he'd be back there in his chair, and we watched him, we watched his body degenerate and fall apart with Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah, I miss Paul. If you knew him, you miss him. Paul got to a point in his life where he was completely vulnerable. But on Christ, the solid rock, he stood. And he's in his presence today. And that's life, and it's truth, and nothing else matters. Doesn't matter with the economy. Doesn't matter the political. Doesn't matter the world. Christ. Christ. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we're never completely vulnerable because of your provision, because of your care, because you're the defense of our lives. There are guys in here tonight that are struggling. They are hurting. They, they, they really are. They've been stripped of some things that they used to have. That's always such a painful thing, Lord. We thank you that you are the living God. Lord, you love to be trusted. You love to be trusted. Sometimes we think we're in this all alone, but we're not. We have a captain that's marching in front of us. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you for his greatness. Thank you for his care. Thank you that he's at the right hand of the Father and he lives forever to make intercession for every one of us in this room who have trusted him. And for those who have not yet trusted him, but he has chosen to come to the kingdom. He's praying for us all right now. He knows where we are. He knows our hearts. He knows our circumstances. Help us to trust. And show us your greatness. We look forward to seeing the promise fulfilled in our particular situation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.